Good morning, dear friends. It is such a uh, joy, truly, to be with all of you uh, again. Uh, when uh, Pastor Brian told me that uh, he was taking the week off, asked if I was interested in uh, coming to share the word with all of you again, uh, I immediately said yes. In fact, I encouraged him to take more weeks off. <laughs> uh, so it is a real joy and a pleasure to be with all of you uh, once again, uh, old friends as well as some new ones. Old as in I've known for a long time, not old in the other sense, just don't be so sensitive. And so, uh, so it's good to see all of you again uh, this day as we gather to worship uh, our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, as we reflect on his word, um, uh, let's do so first uh, with a word of prayer. Let's pray and ask for the Lord to bless us as we meditate on, upon his word today. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we uh, come before you this day. We thank you, Lord, for Jesus Christ, uh, our blessed Savior, he who is the God-man, who took upon himself uh, the penalty of our sins, that we may stand uh, and gather here to worship you today. Uh, we can declare you holy and ourselves also uh, as holy because of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. As we gather now to uh, hear your word, we pray, Father, that you will bless us with it to remind us once again of the great things that you have done for our salvation, uh, that we may rejoice and give thanks to you. Hear us, dear Lord, for we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The word for our reflection uh, this morning comes from uh, Psalm 88. Uh, I'm going to read the entire psalm here. It's about 18 verses. <clears throat> it's uh, not terribly long, but uh, you'll see that this is a rather uh, unusual psalm. And as we read it together, if you have not read it before, uh, you may find it quite, uh, quite surprising. So Psalm 88, uh, verses 1 through 18. Hear now the reading of God's word. A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah to the choir master, according to Mahalath Le'anoth, a maskil of Heman the Ezrahite. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your ways. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness? or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness. But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. 
I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. That's the reading of God's word for this morning. Well, folks, I hope you had a good Thanksgiving because that's a rather depressing psalm. <laughs> uh, there are some songs that we sing uh, that often do nothing but just describe the great times that we have of life, uh, times of real victory, of excellence, times that we think back with real memory of fondness, and there are songs that we have that really celebrate that. There, it's like an episode of Leave it to Beaver uh, or an episode of uh, The Brady Bunch or The Cosby Show, or whatever it is, the new fangled TV show that is that celebrates that life is everything great, everything is perfect, everything is in this right order. Psalm 88 is not one of those songs. Uh, this, folks, is a pure lament. Uh, as lament songs go in the Psalms, uh, there are, first of all, there's quite a lot of laments. That is quite surprising. Almost half of the Psalter, I guess we can call uh, just broadly speaking, as being sort of a sad song. But even the sad songs in the Psalms usually end with sort of an uplifting note of praise, something positive, something uh, that uh, exalts God. Psalm 88 is a pure lament. There is no praise at all in this psalm. It's a 100% sorrow. Uh, in fact, even the psalm ends not with a sense of of, of Finality. There is no sense of, 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 of things have coming to resolution. You're just exhausted as the psalm ends. You just sort of run out of breath uh, as the psalm begins to lament uh, his sorrow. In that sense, Psalm 88 really gives us a real sense of the fallenness of life, at least the world in which we live in. The world in which we live in is a fallen world, and we get a reflection of that uh, in this psalm. And in that sense, this is a psalm perhaps that many of us can identify with. Uh, perhaps something that we pray, uh, perhaps some of the images and the words that you hear in the psalm are things that you have reflected on and even lifted up the Lord in prayer yourself. The main message of this psalm that I'd like to share with you today is this, that the, the psalmist here in Psalm 88 is enduring a painful time in life that he, and it feels like death. It feels like a living death. Uh, since this is not specified in terms of what exactly is causing this harm, this is an experience that we can all appreciate and all can identify with because, after all, we all live in a fallen world. The application that I hope that you'll gain from this is by meditating on this psalm that we can see the suffering of the psalmist, but more than that, realize that what we are reading about is the suffering of Christ, and even more than that, that in our union with Christ, that we are reading about our lament in our union with Jesus Christ. Uh, there are four uh, things I'd like to share with us as we reflect on this psalm. First, uh, it's the deathly agony of the psalmist in verses 1 through 9, about half of 9, about 9a. Uh, the second is the rhetoric of death, and that's in 9b, the second part of verse 9, to verse 12. Third, deathly agony redux, verses 11, 13 to 18. In that section, the psalmist is repeating himself. 
and saying a lot of the things that he had already said before. And then finally, although the psalm may have uh, just a pure lament with no praise, there is hope, folks, in this psalm. There really is. Uh, it, not, it may not be very explicit, but it is there. And so the fourth thing that I'd like to share with you is the hope that we can gain, the joy that we can gain in Psalm 88. So those are the uh, four things I'd like to share with you today. The deathly agony of the psalmist, the rhetoric of death, the deathly agony repeated, and then the hope of Psalm 88. First, uh, this deathly agony of the psalmist in verses 1 through 9. The crisis of the psalmist is never specified. Uh, we are not told exactly what's going on. We're not told what caused it. Uh, all we are given are just graphic depictions and images of what exactly he is enduring through. And the images that are used to describe the pain of the psalmist are images all associated with death or deathly places. Uh, and these are used to express the suffering, the trials that he is going through. It opens up in this section, verses 1 and 2, with its opening plea for help. Notice what the psalmist says here in verses 1 and 2. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. The psalmist here is crying out to God. In fact, what you're going to find is that this is not the only time in the psalm that he is doing this. He does it again in verse 9, and then again in verse 13. You get the sense that the psalmist is, is desperate, and he is crying out to God uh, for utter help. It says here in verse 2 and verse 1 that he's doing this day and night. It's a sense of a never-ceasing cry. He is doing it all of the time, all day, every day. He is crying out to the psalmist. Verse 2, let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear uh, to my cry. Uh, the psalmist is crying out to God, and he is asking for God to hear his appeal. What you find that's interesting here in Psalm 88 is that this is the only request that he makes of God. Just hear what I'm saying. He's not asking for a resolution. He just wants God to hear. You get the sense that the struggle he's having is he doesn't think God's hearing him. And that's why he's constantly saying it. He is desperate for a sense that his prayers are not wasted, that God is listening to what he has to say. In that sense, you get a lot of noise here in the first couple of verses here. The noisiest portions of the psalm are right here because he wants God to hear and pay attention to what he has to say. Verses 3 to 5 moves on now to describe the, depiction, the, the, the trials, the, the destruction, the, the hardship that the uh, psalmist uh, is going through. And again, he is using different images of death here to communicate the struggles that he is going through. I'm not sure if you can uh, identify, folks. I'm sure, actually, I'm sure you all can. Uh, a pain that is so agonizing, it, it feels like you're dying. Uh, verse 3, for my soul is full of troubles. My life draws near to Sheol. That idea that my soul, first it's a soul, it's a very inner part of who we are. The psalmist says, it's full of troubles. It's saturated with troubles. It is overflowing. It's bursting forth with bad things. It is reaching down to Sheol. Sheol in the Old Testament is the place of the dead. This is essentially the grave, the cemetery. This is where you put those who have passed away. And he is saying that his life is drawn near to this place of the dead. The sorrow that he is going through is so damaging. It is so intense. It is so painful. 
it is as if he is on the verge of death itself. Uh, verse 4, I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Uh, he says that he is like those who go down to the pit. Again, another image of death. Uh, it's possible that the psalmist here is alluding to the prophet Jeremiah. If you remember, uh, Jeremiah the prophet was actually thrown in a pit, a cistern, left there to essentially rot away and to die. Uh, and that perhaps is what he is alluding to. He has gone down to the place of the pit of where you throw people essentially to wither away uh, and to die. He says that I am a man who has no strength. Folks, there are like, I don't know, there, there are a gazillion different words for man in Hebrew. Uh, there's a fairly generic word for man. We have the same thing in English if you think about it. Uh, the word that he uses here for man is the Hebrew word gavar. Uh, the, the root of that word gavar actually means to be strong. So it is interesting, of all of the words that he could use to describe himself as a man, he uses the word that's sort of uh, associated with strength because he says later, I am a gavar, who has no strength. He is a man who should be strong, but because of the trials he is going through, he says he has none. He has no strength at all. Verse 5, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that, has, that lies in the grave, this imagery of one being set free, set loose, is sort of an ironic one because he is set free, it seems, from mortal life. He is set free from life so that he is only with the dead. Like the slain, he says, that lie in the grave. He goes on to say here, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. What is it like to be dead? It is to be not remembered by God anymore. Because what business does God have with those who are in the grave? They have no more business with God. That's why they are in the grave. And that is what the psalmist is sensing. He is feeling his life is like a living death. Verses 6 to 9 goes on to develop a new line of thinking here because now he is understanding the divine agent of his cause. Uh, again, more elaborate images of death here, but he starts to realize the reason why he is going through this is because of God. Before he, was, he first makes a cry to God, he describes the trials he's going through as if it's like a, a deathly death, a death-like living. And then here in verses 6 to 9, he begins to give credit to why he's experiencing this. He is saying that it is because of you, O oh God. In one sense, you could say the psalmist here is really the, the worst kind of Calvinist. He, he doesn't struggle perhaps the way that we struggle in terms of uh, life is out of control, God is uh, not with me. He knows that God is in control. He just sees that God is the one that is causing the hardships that he is going through. Listen to what he is saying here. Verse 6, you have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions of, dark, of the dark and the deep. You see, it's not that he doesn't realize that, that things are, are, are in chaos. God's in control. And for that reason, he could just snap his fingers and he doesn't have to struggle anymore. So if he is going through this, you see, it's because God is forcing it or bringing it upon him. You, O oh God, have put me in the depths of the pit. The reason why I'm going through this living death, you have put me there. Uh, in the regions of, dark, of the dark and the deep. This imagery of the dark and the deep is all water imagery here. 
you almost get the sense that the psalmist is drowning, overcome with water-type images. In the ancient world, uh, water and, and the oceans and the seas and the rivers and things of this nature oftentimes are associated with chaos, disorder, uh, entropy, even death. So you get the sense here that what you have is that God put him in a place of chaos and disorder. That is the reason why he is going through these things. Verse 7, your wrath lies heavy upon me. You overwhelm me with all of your ways. There again is that water imagery again, that God is sort of pummeling the psalmist with ways and ways of agony and hardship. Uh, verses 8 and 9, you have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. His companions are distant. The word here for companions is from a Hebrew word that gives a sense of intimacy and, and closeness. You know, close friends, family, the, the ones that you expect to be there with you when things are rough and the hardest. The psalmist is saying these people are the ones who are gone. And the reason why they are gone and abandoned me is because God has forced them to do so. You have made them a whore uh, before them. Uh, you have made me a whore before them, that is, my friends. The word here for whore really is the word for abomination, something disgusting by nature, something that even is, is even the subject of divine repulsion. God is repulsed by those things that are abominable. And now this is what the psalmist is saying is what he has now become. Uh, I am shut in. There is no way to escape, perhaps alluding to that pit imagery again. Uh, my eyes are dim through affliction. Uh, you know, you go through times when the trials are so intense, where the, the pain is so uh, uh, great that you can't see straight. Everything is cloudy. You know, that's what he is saying here, that he cannot see straight. He cannot see any hope because there is no hope to glasp onto. Sometimes we hope for just a small glimmer of hope at the end of a long tunnel. The psalmist can't even see that right now. All he sees is the tunnel that he is in. Uh, the second thing that he talks about here now is a rhetoric of death in verses 9b uh, to 12. Uh, the psalmist here offers up a series of rhetorical questions that are focused on death. The answer here in almost every case is an answer of no. And it's just a very powerful way that the psalmist is again describing the trials that he is going through. Uh, in verse 9b again, Every day I call upon you, O Lord, I spread out my hands to you. There again, the psalmist is crying out to God for help. I call to you, O God. You get this image of a psalmist just lifting his hands in, in, in sheer desperation for God, as if he is trying to reach out to him, for God to embrace him in some way, and it's going unanswered. And then in verse 10, he begins with a series of these rhetorical questions. Do you work wonders for the dead? The answer there is no, you're dead. I am dead. The, the opportunity for God to have done something has now gone. I've now, I am now in the grave. Do the departed get up to praise you? Do the departed actually get up in the morning and actually praise you? Of course not. They're dead. They can't do anything. The opportunity that they had for praise was in life when the Lord could have done something, but now they are dead. Now the opportunity has passed. Um, Verse 11, is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Of course not. Again, the opportunity for steadfast love to have shown itself is with the living. But now we are in the place of the dead. We are in the place 
of the rotting of corpses, the, the rotting of flesh, of grotesque stench. That is where we are here. Inhale, the opportunity for God's love has now passed. Will your faithfulness uh, be declared in abaddon? Again, abaddon here is a word for judgment, of destruction, perishing, and defilement. The opportunity for God to have made himself uh, victorious has now passed. Can he make his praise done amongst those who are in abaddon? No, they are dead. That's the whole point. Verse 12, are your wonders known in the darkness? Of course not. It's the darkness. You can't see anything, much less be able to see the wonders of God. Or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? No, it's the land of forgetfulness. Everything is forgotten, even your righteousness uh, at this point. There are four different words here that are being used to describe death. The grave, abaddon, uh, darkness, the land of forgetfulness. It sort of contrasted by four different words that describe Yahweh's activity, the Lord's activities. Steadfast love, faithfulness, his wonders, his righteousness. The implication is that none of these things of God are found here in the place of the dead. It's a place of the dead, you see. Thirdly, the psalmist then moves on by repeating the deathly agonies. These are repeated themes, something that you read about in the earlier two sections, uh, and it really reinforces the finality of the psalm and how nothing is resolved for the psalmist. And the fact that he has to repeat himself is quite significant. You know, imagine yourself a parent of young children that don't listen to what you have to say. Try really hard to imagine what life would be like for that and how often you have to repeat yourself. Why? Because they are not listening. The psalmist here is repeating himself. Hypothetically, I know there are some children out there that are like that, not, not, not this crowd. But hypothetically here, the psalmist is feeling the same thing. He is repeating himself because he feels that God is not listening. Uh, verse 13, but I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Again, the psalmist ten is tenacious. He is praying in the morning, praying in the evening. He is praying all the day, the day long. In fact, the word here for cry out to you it, you've had three different instances in the psalm of the psalmist crying out to the Lord. It, three different actual verbs. They're all translated as, as cry out here, but they are three different actual verbs in the original text. Every possible word that could be used to describe the psalmist crying out to God is being used in this psalm. Uh, verse 14, O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? It, as if God is actively hiding, hiding himself from the psalmist. Verse 15, afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors, I am helpless. This isn't an isolated case. It's not like the psalmist here is going through a hard time now and is feeling isolated. This has been a description of his entire life, ever since he was young. You get the sense here that God has seems to have abandoned him always. Verse 16, your wrath has swept over me, your dreadful assaults destroy me. You get the sense of a burning anger or a heat, the, the, the fiery wrath of God coming upon the psalmist here. Verse 17, they surround me like flood, like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. The, the wrath of God, 
the anger of God, the dread of God, all of these are sort of tag-teaming together now against the psalmist. It, it is interesting. You've got watery imagery again here with this fiery wrath imagery that we read about in the previous verse. They are sort of contradictory images here, but it's as if the psalmist here is trying to use every possible metaphor and image that he can think of to be as exhaustive as he can to describe the trials that he is going through. He is suffocating. He is burning. He is drowning. That is what it feels like uh, for uh, the psalmist. And then verse 18, you have caused my beloved, my friend, to shun me. My companions have become darkness. That's a great image at the end there. All my friends have abandoned me. My friends, my family, gone. All that's left to me that I can associate with, that I can fellowship with, darkness, dread, agony. And that's the way the psalm ends, folks. No sense of conclusion, no sense of finality, no sense of resolve, just sheer exhaustion and end. It is a, a difficult psalm to work through, um, not perhaps because of the, 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 the language or, or anything like that, just the images, because so often this captures the, the essence of the struggles that we have in life. In many sense, you could say that the, uh, we, we starve for a sense of hope here, but we don't find it here in Psalm 88. Because again, that is oftentimes the sense that we have in life. We go through trials and it looks like there is no hope. But folks, there is hope, not necessarily in Psalm 88 itself perhaps, but there is hope that this psalm does offer us. There are five different ways that we can derive hope, that we can derive joy from a psalm like this. First, Number one, to read about the perseverance of the psalmist. Notice how the psalmist is relentless. He will not give up. He will not surrender. He appeals to the Lord, and he does so without ceasing. Because after all, who else can we go to? Who else has the words of eternal life and hope other than God himself? So the psalmist here knows that he cannot do anything on his own, that there is no one who can do anything for him but for God, and so he will not give up. Number two, we have to remember, folks, Psalm 88 is in the canon of Scripture. Psalm 88 is the word of God. I've often reflect, thought of uh, Heman, the Ezraite, the, the author of Psalm 88. As he is now in the eternal kingdom, as he is now before the glory seat of God, what could he be thinking through now? And what is it that God could be telling him? You see, folks, it's by having it here in the word, it's as if God is telling him, I heard, I heard everything you had to say. Every prayer you lifted up, it never went unanswered. I heard everything. And now I have made it my word in the word of God in the Holy Scriptures. This is now something that not just you, but all of God's people can now use and use it for their worship. You see, you were never alone. You have people who are struggling just like you, just like this psalm. And there, for that reason, this word, you could say, is a word of hope to remind us that we are not alone. Number three, you have this appeal to God. 
very frequently the resolution to trials in Scripture are not found in the resolution of the conflict. Very frequently the resolution that we need is not by resolving the tension. The hope that we gain is by remembering God. And that is what you read about here in the psalmist. In verse 1, O Lord, God of my salvation. There's essentially the high point of the psalm. The rest of the psalm is sort of downhill from here. But he does not give up. He appeals to God. In one sense, you could say the psalm sort of uh, strips away all other distractions. Friends are gone. Family is gone. Everybody is gone. The only thing that you have left is God and God alone. And what we realize sometimes is that that is all that we need, is God and God alone. We think we need a resolution to our conflict. We think that we need this thing to come to an end. We think that it has to be resolved. But guess what? God tells us, no, what you need is me. Remember the book of Job and all of the trials and atrocities and difficulties that he went through. And not once was he ever told why he had to go through what he did. Never told about that heavenly dialogue between God and this uh, angelic accuser. In fact, what Job realizes at the end is that what he needed more than anything else was God. The words of the psalmist in Psalm 73 and verse 25 whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What we need is God and God only. And that is what the psalm reminds us of. Number four, what we read about here is not just the agony of the psalmist, what we read about here is really the agony of the true psalmist. Remember, folks, that the book of Psalms is, in one sense, a book of prophecy. It is a, a book that is anticipating and telling us about the life of the true Messiah, Jesus Christ. And in that sense, Psalm 88, you could say, is not just a description of the agony of the psalmist here. It is a description of the agony of Christ. Notice what Jesus says John 12, verse 27. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. He says, I have come to suffer, and to suffer agony, and to suffer painfully. Luke 24, 22, in verse 44. And being in agony, I prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling onto the ground. There's no evidence in the New Testament that Jesus ever cited Psalm 88, but you could see how the words of this psalm are the words of Christ himself. And when you read it that way, folks, notice how everything changes. The tone of the psalm is different. Notice if it were Jesus saying, O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry day and now before you. Let my prayer come before you. Let my, my soul is full of troubles. My life draws near to Sheol. Verse 6, you have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions of dark and the deep. Uh, uh, and then even the rhetorical questions there changes. 
Do the work, verse 10, do work wonder, do you work wonders for the dead? For the psalmist, the answer is a strong resounding no. But for Jesus, the answer is a strong resounding yes. Do you do the departed rise up to praise you? In Christ, absolutely yes. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Or your faithfulness in Abaddon, in Christ, is a strong, resounding yes. But you see, folks, we can't even stop there. Finally, in number five, these are not just the words of Christ. In Christ, folks, these are our words as well. In our union with Christ, what we could see is that we have a full understanding of who Jesus is, not just in his glory, but also in his trials to make the sufferings of Christ our sufferings as well. And in that sense, to do what the Apostle Paul describes as fellowshipping with Christ in his sufferings. You see, folks, how much do we really want to know Jesus? How much do you really want to know Christ? See, to know Christ just in his glory is to not to know Jesus, but to know Jesus in his suffering and glory is to know the full Jesus, the real Jesus, the full Jesus, the whole Jesus. That is what uh, we see. And in that sense, you could say that these words are genuinely our words in Christ. My soul is full of troubles. My life draws near to Sheol, verse 3. Verse 6, you have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me. You overwhelm me with all your waves. And then finally in Christ, those rhetorical questions also for us in Christ is also a strong, resounding yes. Do you work wonders for the dead? In Christ, for us, yes. Do the departed rise up to praise you? In Christ, for us, yes. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? your faithfulness in abandon, are your wonders known in the darkness, or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness, in union with Christ, it is a yes, a yes and amen in Christ. For all these reasons, dear friends, I thank God for Psalm 88. I thank God for such a psalm that gives words to the trials that we go through. There are sometimes... Um, agonies and, and difficulties that we go through where the pain is so intense that you just can't put words through it. You're, you're just numb, and you can't really articulate what you are going through. Praise God that we have a psalm like this that gives to us words to our trials. And not just offer it in some sense of complaint, but it's a prayer. For that reason, we can bring, come into a place like this, a place of worship and our hardship, bring our pain, bring our sorrows, use a psalm like this, and offer it up to God as a prayer, as a song, worship in the midst of our lament. But not just any word, but the words of this psalm, the words of Christ, the suffering servant. And in Christ, these words become our words as we draw closer to a deeper knowledge of Jesus Christ, his suffering as well as his glory. Let's pray uh, together.
Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you for Jesus Christ, truly our Savior. We thank you, Lord, for his death, his resurrection. We thank you, Lord, that his sorrow in Christ can be our sorrows, uh, that we can fellowship with him truly, that we can uh, rejoice for that reason. For after all, to know Christ is our joy. To know Christ is our highest virtue. And that's what we want, dear God, is to not know pain per se, but to know Jesus. And if to suffer as Christ did draws us towards that, then we embrace it wholeheartedly to know Christ. I pray, Lord, for these folks. I pray, Lord, for this church. I pray for your people here. If there are those who are going through times like this, if there are those who are enduring trials where it feels like they are going through a living death, I pray, Father, that the words of this psalm can be a ministry unto them, that it will bring to them, Lord, a sense of comfort. They are not alone, that you hear their prayers, that their, pri their cries do not go um, uh, uh, wasted away, but you, Lord, focus your divine sovereign love and attention upon them, that what they are doing, Lord, also is drawing closer to Christ. And in that, Lord, I pray that you will minister to them, strengthen them, give to them hope, a hope that only you can give, a hope that is found only by faith, in Jesus Christ. Hear us, dear Lord, for we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.